Quarter to Three Board Games Podcast for early April 2019. My name is Tom Chicken. My game that I am not playing is Roll for the Galaxy. Um, I'm Hassan Lopez, and I am not currently playing Amoeba Wars. And my name is Mike Pullman, and I am not yet playing Underwater Cities, although I want to. Why? What, what makes you... Because I'm, I'm super curious about that, but I'm worried it's just like... Well, like... Right now it's just a hype thing, and I'm kind of curious to check it out. Right. Um, and it unfortunately short-shipped, so we didn't get as many copies as we ordered, so I can't even bring one home to try it. I, I read the rules for it, and was like oh that's all it is because there there is a hype thing and i love the idea and you know it's like a bioshock concept i love that so i was like yeah let me see what the big deal is and i read the rules and i kind of felt like oh uh, but i guess it's one of those things maybe you have to see it in action right um uh so what we are playing however um let's see mm, i'll actually i'll, I'll jump in first because mine is a a fairly small game i was kind of surprised at how small it is uh, partly because compared to Race for the Galaxy, uh, which has gotten really big, Race Arcana, the game I want to talk about now, is a super like low component count, uh, modest game. Uh, and they're both by Tom Lehman. Lehman? Lehman? Do you know how to say his name, either of you? I believe it's Lehman. Lehman. Uh, he did Race for the Galaxy, and that's had, like, it's got to have at least three or four expansions. Uh, and it has Roll for the Galaxy, which is, a, is sort of an iteration on that concept using dice. Uh, so his latest thing is Race Arcana, which is a fantasy-themed thing versus the science fiction of uh, Race for the Galaxy. And uh, it just looked really kind of small, uh because it doesn't have that many pieces. And it also does a weird thing where you're only ever using eight cards when you play. When you play Race for the Galaxy, uh, one of its strengths, and I feel weaknesses, uh, is that you need to know what is in this big deck of cards. And if you've got a bunch of the expansions, it is a pretty big deck of cards because you need to make decisions based on things like how likely is it that I'll find a yellow planet? Or uh, how much is my economic build going to rely on on credits? Or uh, can I get synergy going with this planet that needs blue resources to convert them into uh, brown resources? Um, So a lot of Race for the Galaxy is knowing the entirety of Race for the Galaxy. And when you dump a new player into it, in addition to that player having to learn all of these icons, some of which are pretty esoteric, um, that player is not really going to have a sense for what is out there. And in a way, that can be thrilling, and it certainly recreates this idea of setting out into the vastness of space and exploring and discovering things. And that's cool, but you're definitely going to lose compared to someone who knows what's in there, knows the distribution of the different resources and things like that. You don't have to deal with any of that when you play Race Arcana because it does a really cool thing where the main cards, and they're sort of the equivalent of the the planets in Race for the Galaxy, the main cards are called artifacts, and it's a weird name for what they are because they do include things like the elven bow or the dwarven hammer or the sacrificial pit. Uh, But then they also include things like dragons, and I've never personally thought of a dragon as an artifact, but okay, I'll go with that. (laughs) Um, And at the beginning of the game, you're dealt eight of these, 
and everybody gets eight of them. And then the rest of the artifacts go back in the box, and you're never going to see them in that game. They're gone. They're out of there. And furthermore, the eight artifacts that got dealt to the other players, you can do a drafting setup once you know the game better, and that's cool. But until then, their artifacts, they don't really matter to you. You're just looking at your eight cards right there. Those are all the cards you're ever going to get. That's your economic engine right there. Now, I say cool. that. That's not entirely true. There's there's tiles. There's other cards out there that you're competing for uh, against the other players to grab. But you know when you start a game, here is exactly what's going to be in play. And, then you and, do you, uh, uh -huh. and do you immediately start formulating a strategy at that point, Tom? Like, can yep. you... Can you can sort of see it unfolding in front of you? Because that's that's kind of a cool experience to have at the start of a game, but it it maybe makes um, it makes the game open up the more that you play it. Like like kind of like what you were just saying. Well, the, it's exactly that, Hassan, because uh, the, the things that you're competing for, and they're called monuments or places of power, and they're basically expensive cards that sit face up in the middle of the board. So everybody sees what's out there. There's no unknowns there. So you're looking at your eight cards, and you're looking at these things that are out in the center of the board consistently, and you're thinking, you know, how can I make these eight cards get me those cards in the center of the board? And you're absolutely doing that, Hassan. You're, you're deciding which of these eight cards is going to be important to my economy. Because what then happens is that you draw three of them, and you're looking at three cards. You shuffle it up, and you're looking at three of those eight that you had looked at. And of those three cards, any one of them, and Race for the Galaxy is kind of like this as well, you can pay for it. There's a cost in the corner. Or you can use a card to represent resources. Uh, so you're doing that thing that you do in Race for the Galaxy where you have you know, four cards and one of them costs three, and another one costs two. So if you buy the one that costs three, all of the other th cards in your hand, you're going to have to discard to pay because mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're two different things. They're a unit of currency, and they're also the cool thing printed on the card. So with these eight cards, you have to make that decision basically as you're sitting there looking at them at the beginning of the game. Is which of these am I going to use, and which of these are just going to be a unit of currency I use to pay for the ones that I use? Um, so right away at the very beginning, it's a super streamlined exercise in, okay, here's what I've got. What synergies am I going to make happen? And it's really gratifying to see that uh, kick into place because one of the things that the rules said, and I didn't believe them, is that, hey, this is a quick game. It's over in four to six rounds. <laughs> I remember reading that and thinking, no, come on. Come on, Tom Lehman. There's no way four to six rounds. Pfft please. But sure enough, yeah, if if you're not like within a move of winning after three rounds, it, you've screwed up. Um, right. right. So it's, it's, it's super snappy and everything is presented right up front. Uh, and I, I just can't think of anything that's quite like it in terms of, hey, put these pieces together without that blind element of, oh, what am I going to draw out of this big old deck? Um, right. And I, I really like that element of it. I've been tracking it a little bit, and I, I'll be honest. Um, while I think that Layman's a, a really great game designer, and he's just made some of the heavy hitters, right? He. What besides that, uh, Race for the Galaxy would I know him from? Well, I mean, Race and Roll and Jump Drive. Um, to court oh, Jump Drive is new, isn't it? As well, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. and th and that's the one that kind of popped into my head as you were talking about this because. 
I really bounced heavily off of Jump Drive in part because it ramped up so quickly. I mean, Lehman ah. really thinks about engine building in a really, really um, you know exponential fashion. Like he he really wants right. players to have that feeling of oh, I'm turn two, uh, you know, on turn one I'm getting one resource, and on turn three I'm getting fifty. You know, yes. it's just yeah. it just blows up so fast. And I actually found that a little weird and disconcerting about Jump Drive. And it, it sounds like this definitely plays with that same idea. But I I love the idea of having this initial hand and putting a whole bunch of cards back in the box that you don't get to play with and then uh, formulating a strategy off of what you see. Yeah. And, and part two is that it's it's a generic fantasy setting, but there is an imaginative expression of generic fantasy stuff using these resources and these this fairly small number of verbs and icon interactions like like for instance i mentioned their dragons there's no real one of my issues with this game and this is a big deal for me personally uh, there's no real player interaction uh it's pretty much we're all sitting over in a corner doing our own thing and because we're not drawing from the same pool of cards i mean we're all competing for the ones in the middle so the only interaction for the most part is oh hey you bought that thing that i was gonna buy uh and you can see that coming, too, based on what resources people are getting. Uh, but he does do a thing, and I kind of wish this was a bigger deal. I was disappointed that it wasn't, and maybe it was just the few times I played. I was disappointed it wasn't as big a deal as it I thought it was going to be. But these dragons that are the super expensive uh, kind of quote-unquote end-game artifacts, end-game meaning third or fourth turn, <laughs> uh, these dragons, when you use a dragon, uh, you can do two points of damage to every other player and the resources in this game there aren't many there's fire and water and life and death and they're both diametrically imposed and for some weird reason by the way fire and water are called elan and calm <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, there's those four opposing sets of resources and then there's gold which is really hard to come by and it's fairly expensive unless you're the alchemist um, but with those limited number of resources he does some really cool expressions of like you get death more often from destroying or discarding a card uh and you get life from things that tend to tap and stay out there and help you so when a dragon when you've got a dragon out and they give you points because it's the the point of this game by the way get 10 victory points and that's it you're just trying to get 10 victory points and that happens fairly quickly so when you, you want a dragon out there because all dragons give you victory points but you also want it out there because when i tap uh, excuse me, turn a dragon, uh, it does two points of life damage to everyone at the table. So if you don't have life resources, and you're only going to get that if you're doing, if that's part of your engine, if you've got like a tree of life or a sacred chalice or something that's giving you life, um, then you instead have to discard two other resources instead of each life point. So if you've got life in your economy, you're protected for the most more more efficiently against dragons, and that's like a cool idea, um, and that's consistent as far as how these resources uh, are expressed. Um, so I you know I I like I like how he plays with verbs and, and fairly limited interactions to express cool ideas, and that's Race Arcana is shot through with that. Every card, like you'll you'll play it a couple of times, and maybe after three or four plays, you know what a card does. Like it does that thing where it first comes out, and you have to look at the icons and think, wait a minute. So, 
is he saying this? And then you look up what it does, and you're like, oh, yep, sure enough, that's exactly what the icons say. And now you, you remember it specifically because you had to look it up. So you know exactly what that card does. So after a few plays, the specificity of all these cards really kind of bubbles up. Um, so I know that if I get that sacred chalice, it's like, oh, I don't care if you guys have dragons, I have the chalice, and I'm, I've got a life economy going. Um, so, yeah, but do the, the, do the mm-hmm. mechanics of this, are they similar to Race to the Galaxy? You know, as far as, like, the phases and yeah. choosing actions and stuff? Or? I do really miss, Mike, the uh, bluffing and the cat and mouse of the phases in Race for the Galaxy, because mm-hmm. that's a huge part of the interaction, is I want to trick you into picking an action to execute so that I can do something else. And that that informs every single turn in Race for the Galaxy. And it right. makes it very interactive in a cool psychological way. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's no component. There's no there's no analog for that in Race okay. Arcana. Uh, so I kind of miss that. Uh, yeah. And, and that just gets to my main problem in that it's, it's, it's not very interactive. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, uh, like I was saying, I, I, I don't know how I feel about games that are purely based on a, on engine building, like the efficiency of engine building. I can't tell if they're designed to make me feel clever or whether they're designed to make me just play the game enough so that I, I discover sort of an optimal way of, of right. playing it. Um, and so the, it sometimes leaves me cold unless the, unless the thematic integration is really well done to the point where I'm kind of immersed in my engine building. Like mm-hmm. there's some kind of narrative hook to it. And I was, do you get that sense in this game or do you think you're going to keep playing it, Tom, or is this something you're going to sort of drop in and, and forget about? Uh, I, I very much get that sense in this game, Hassan, in that, uh, in, in that the unique personality of each card, and let's see how many cards there's probably like, I mean, it's a four player game. So there have to be at, at least enough. There have to be 48 cards. That's why eight, eight, eight. No, that's not, uh, What's eight? To 36. There'd be at least 36 artifact cards, and I'm sure there are probably more. So there's maybe 50 artifacts in here. Um, and I, I feel like he's done a good job of making each one feel unique and expressive. And when I get those eight cards, it, it doesn't feel like something that I would solve. It feels right. like every time the combinatorial possibilities of any hand of eight cards... Uh, and furthermore, which of those are going to come out? Because if it's a game that only lasts four to six rounds, you're only drawing one card. Uh, so you're not going to go through this deck multiple times. So therefore, if you're really counting on, oh yeah, with these eight cards, well, I'll start with this one, and then I'll do this one, that might not pay off because the one you want to start with might be at the bottom of the deck, and you won't draw it until the sixth round. Um, so... Uh, uh, yeah, I will keep playing it, Hassan, because it is light, it is snappy, uh, I think it's really accessible, and just the combinatorial possibilities of the fact that you've got eight cards, you'll never have more of them, uh, I, I, I really find that exciting. And I'm kind of hitting too hard this idea of eight cards, because you also, you have a mage, which is your, your basically your starting artifact, you can think of it, in, it's already in play, your character, mm-hmm. uh, and he has an action. Uh, instead of picking the actions like you do in Race for the Galaxy, there are uh, what are called items out there, which is a, 
uh, an ability. They're all books, actually. They're little spell books. And it gives you a certain ability, like untap a card or take an extra resource. And the whole turn structure is you begin by choosing one of those eight items on the table. And then when you pass, you put the item back that you took and you take a new one. Um, mm. So there's that element. And then there are these places of power, which are all... Uh, one of the things that I really hate, not hate, one of the things that I identify in economic engine builders that I think is always a little disappointing when I identify it and see where it is, is that idea of, okay, at a certain point, you stop building your economy and you start making victory points. And I'm always mm -hmm. like, that's boring. I mean, that, that that's what the thing that kills dominions for me is it's always, mm -hmm. okay, at what point am I going to stop doing fun, cool stuff and just start cranking out victory points? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in Race Arcana, there are these things called places of power, which are big old tiles. They're not even cards. Uh, and they are the things that you claim to then make victory points. Uh, so, And there's five of those that are sitting out there. Uh, and furthermore, they're double-sided, and you're supposed to randomly decide which of the two sides gets put into play. So one game you might have the pirate ship out, another game you might have the cursed forge, but not the pirate ship. You know, is the dragon's lair going to be out there? And again, you see all this at the moment the game starts when you're looking at your eight cards. So there's no surprises, but there are different combinations. Um, and then finally, there's this idea that gold is more difficult to get than the other resources. So there are things called monuments that you can only buy with gold that also give you points and give you a special ability. Everything that gives you points in this game, by the way, also gives you something for your economic engine. So it's yeah. never a mutually exclusive choice. Do I build my engine or do I get points? Uh, and because it only goes to 10 points, it goes quickly. There's a cool thing, too, with the first player marker. Uh, when you, If you're the first one to pass, you take the first player marker so that you'll go first the next turn. The first player marker is a floating victory point, which I really mm -hmm. love that idea. Um, mm -hmm. Because if you've got nine points and you pass, oh, yep, I'm going to hit that 10-point threshold and win. And we routinely had games, too, where because it is going to be a four- to six-round game, we all could get 11 points, or we all got the same number of points, and it came down to the tiebreaker. Uh, it, 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 it was very close in that regard. So mm, Cool. What's so, the, yeah, what do you think is uh, the best player count for it? Uh, I don't know that it would work well with two. They do a thing with two where they suggest, uh, try this little drafting thing where you put your cards back in and then pick and play a couple of rounds. So three or four, and it doesn't go to five, uh, gotcha. which I think is yeah. partly why it's snappy. Uh, so three or four. Um, and it's perfect, too. It's not going to be the only game you play that night. Uh, it's perfect as a kind of a palate cleanser. Or if it is the only game you play that night, you're going to easily get in four or five rounds of it. Um, nice. So, uh, yeah, Race Arcana, if you're okay with the typical idea of no real meaningful player interaction, uh, I, I think it's a solid engine builder. And it just it really makes me want to look at Jump Drive Hassan, even if I don't like it, just to see what he has done. With it. Is Jump Drive short and snappy as well? It is, and I, to be honest, I'd, I'd be happy to send you my copy, Tom. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> wow, you just don't like it that much. Thoroughly <laughs> bored of it. Yeah, I find it thoroughly boring. I, I think I'll, I'll. It's part of it is that for whatever reason, the aesthetic of Jump Drive and Race for the Galaxy, I find so generic, <laughs> boring, gray sci-fi that I, it makes me sick almost. I'm just like, oh, it's just so boring to me. I don't know. Uh, we know I, I'll look up the rules and, and read over them. If that looks like something I'd be interested in, I might definitely take you up on that. It's, it's uh, all yours, man. All right, so. all right.
Uh, Mike, real quick, what's hot at uh, Gaming Goat in Littleton, Colorado these days? What's moving? Um, so, uh, Underwater Cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone in the world wants a copy of Wingspan, but I don't have any. I don't know. Why do they? Because I've gotten to play that. Why have you? Has either of you played Wingspan? No, I, I watched some people playing it at the store on Saturday, and I was like, eh, it looks okay. That's exactly that. That was my thought playing it, uh, Mike. Is yeah, it's okay because I, I have a friend and she loves her coffee and it's certainly charming, but uh, I don't understand why it's such a big deal. Uh, okay. Yeah, and then uh, the other thing that's been really popular this past week is Call to Adventure, which I'd like to try out. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. You can't see this on a, on a podcast, but you get you hear this noise. Listen to this. <laughs> That's me smacking my unsh- my. It just literally arrived before we started uh, podcasting. My shrink wrapped box of Call to Adventure. Oh, very good. Yeah, because I, I and love as, that. As a as an RPG player, that appeals to me. It's kind of a random story generator for kind of a yep. light role playing thing. So. Yep, you and me both. Do, do you know a game called uh, Legends of the Old West? I, I do not. Richard, Richard Lanius. Uh, I, th- I thought it was super disappointing, but I loved this idea that uh, it's a Western thing, and you, you draw your character's backstory and motivation, and then you flip up cards that represent things that happen to a, to your character, and you can end up uh, being mauled by a grizzly bear or uh, marrying a, a high-society debutante, or you can, be, you can become president of the United States in this game. Uh, oh, I, I remember this one. You, you wrote a review of this one, didn't you, Tom? This... Um... It looked like a super. It had a great aesthetic to it, and I loved the theme, and I loved the idea of creating a story. And then there were some mechanical elements to it that I think really seriously undercut it. Was that it, the the gist yeah. of it? It was clear. It was it was very sadly underdesigned and just had some serious just issues. Uh, a lot of sort of loosey goosey stuff about well, how are we supposed to resolve that? But I love the idea of it. You know, knowing there's a, hey, become president of the United States card out there that my my mountain man who got mauled by a bear might move to Washington, D.C. and become the president. Uh, but, but, yeah, so I'm hoping that Call to Adventure is that sort of thing. That's what I'm looking mm-hmm. for there. Yeah. So, yeah, so, uh, uh, I'm, so excited those, to, I'm excited to grab that and try it uh, when I can. Yeah. Well, maybe I will be talking about it in two weeks. So. Cool. <laughs> uh, so, okay, and as for what you're playing, uh, is explain what this is because i i i'm sitting here with my arms crossed going hmm like i'm super skeptical of this so i've been playing a game called chronicles of crime um and actually there were two games very similar uh, that came out last year the, the other one was called detective mm-hmm. which i kind of bounced off of um it was more became a time management game than the actual investigating because you always had to carefully decide when you're going to travel and ask questions and so on uh, chronicles of crime is a lot more open-ended um, so the game is, it has a board, but it's really just for collecting cards as you start solving the case. And then all these, uh, sub boards of locations. So the first one you get is uh, a Scotland yard and it's all set in London. So there might be something in, uh, uh, I don't even know the different parts in, uh, in, uh, London, but different neighborhoods of London and so on. And then it is all controlled by an app, which I know both oh, of you guys are. Oh, that's why I'm skeptical. Yes. That's <laughs> okay. You guys are both very anti-app. <laughs> so... Uh, the base game comes with, I think, five or six different scenarios in the app. Uh, one of them is a three-parter, so three connected adventures. Uh, and then they, of course, just like uh, Mansions of Madness, sell add-on uh, adventures uh, that are just use the same components. And, uh, and then there was just an expansion that came out uh, about two weeks ago that makes it instead of... So the base game, you're police. Uh, the expansion turns it into a private investigator thing where you don't have police resources. 
Uh, so in any case, uh, so you start out this adventure, it'll say, you know, this guy will say, come into my office and we're going to talk and you need to go check out this person is missing or whatever. Real quick, uh, Mike, is it, a, is it yeah. a period piece or it's modern London? Uh, modern London. Okay. Uh, the expansion is uh, kind of, you know, classic Philip Marlowe, private investigator kind of stuff. So 40s. Uh, but, but in London. Base, but the, yes, but okay. the base game is modern London. Mm-hmm. Uh, every single component in the game, uh, other than the board, so the locations, all the cards, have a QR code on them. And that's how you tell the app what you want to do. So, for example, if I want to travel to a location, I would just scan the QR code of where I'm going to go. Uh, and then in each location, there's spots for three different cards of who might be there. Uh, so there's a whole deck of cards of various people. All they have is numbers and QR codes. Uh, there's a deck of items uh, such as, you know, it actually has words on it. It might say, you know, blood or a uh, restraining device or tools or a computer. Uh, and those are things you're going to find at various crime scenes. Uh, and again, they have QR codes on them. And then there are unique items that are specific for an adventure. And they have, uh, there's uh, maybe a dozen or so of those, which are kind of key pieces of evidence you find. So uh, you travel to a location, and then it'll say you get here, and this person, you know, this lady number 26 is here, and it'll tell you her name. Then you can scan the person and then start asking them questions. And you do that by, you can scan, so let's say I'm talking to uh, some lady about a crime, and I want to ask her about another person. During that conversation, I would just scan the card of the other person, and you'll start getting all these clues. Uh, So there's no turns, it's just a group collaborative figure out what's going on uh, and then the other key piece is when you're at a crime scene uh, you get to use your app to look around graphically what's what you see so one person grabs their phone or tablet or whatever and kind of scans around in a 3d view of what they see and they'll say i see uh you know a dead body and some a dead dog and there's some rope here and there's gun wait you mean as- in the room like it's an ar thing in the room you're sitting in Nope, it's actually uh, graphical, graphically created on your phone. So oh, I see. Okay, okay. Um, and then one person's looking at that and describing what they see. Everyone else is going to that deck of cards that has labels with the words on it and grabbing things that are corresponding to what they see. And then after that, you get about 30 seconds to look at it and gather clues. Then you can start scanning those cards directly to look at them for more, more information. And it'll say, this is an important clue. Put it on the board. So then you can refer to it with any conversation or even for solving a case later in the game. So you're kind of, it's, you get in this cycle of go somewhere, look at, uh, graphically look at what's going on in the scene, collect these cards and assemble your board, which if you kind of imagine is, you know, the wall with the red string, right. Of connecting all these things. <laughs> yep. Um, and then, uh, is it actually physically that by the way? What's, oh no, it actually just is a board with a bunch of okay, spots okay. cards. Uh, and then the other, they have an optional add-on of a VR module, which is this uh, actual optical lenses you flip over, kind of slide onto your phone uh, to give you a 3D view of the same thing. Mm. So you can kind of look around and move your phone. And that's you know actually with the uh, uh, motion movement of looking around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I play this three times now, and I have yet to get a perfect score on any of the cases I've tried. How do they so score? Actually, by the way, is the is it like you you're you're assembling your solution to the crime and how close you are as a score. Is that the idea? So when you're ready, you go back to Scotland Yard and you talk to your police captain or whatever, and then you say you're ready to solve it. It will start asking you questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 
where was this body found and what was the murder weapon and what was the motive? And then based on how close you are, you get a score. And then also based on how long it took you, you start losing some Mm. points too. Mm -hmm. So every time you have to change locations to go from the police station to, uh, you know, the park that eats away a little time and every conversation you start eats away a little time. So Mm -hmm. the more efficiently you get to the solution is, is part of your score too. So overall, I actually am having a lot of fun with this. I don't see how this game could be done without an app. Um, I mean, I guess you could do something like, you know, the original Mansions of Madness where you have this deck of all these different variables and that right. kind of thing. But uh, And the cool thing is that, like, all there's this huge deck of people. There's, you know, they're just faces, headshots. Uh, they're done, or, uh, they're not photos, they're art. Uh, and they're just numbered. Uh, and it'll say, you know, you talk to Anna Smith, number 27. And the next time you play it, it may use a completely different picture for her just because it has that ability to, to vary it. Mm-hmm. Right. And locations can change too. Uh, the actual narrative is the same every time, as far as I can tell. Um, but between, I got the game, the expansion, and the VR thing. So I have, I don't know, 15 or so adventures to go through. So I have quite a bit to, to work through. Oh, and the other part I forgot is um, uh, when you're playing the main game, there's four police specialists you have. There's a hacker, a uh, forensic scientist, a doctor, and a criminologist. So at any time you can say, hey, uh, hacker, here's a cell phone, what do you find on it? Mm. So you scan the hacker, then scan the phone, and it'll say, all right, well, I found this on the emails or texts. And it's kind of, you kind of get that CSI vibe. And uh, the, you know, the criminologist might tell you, oh, this person uh, was arrested for this three years ago, or they might start doing profiling. Mm. So you do, you do, you have lots of, at any given time, there's a zillion different ways you can go. So you do really feel like you're kind of trying to solve a puzzle. Now, as far as uh, being a, a cooperative multiplayer game, there's no sense of player roles or anything, right? It's just like two people could play it just as easily as five people. Uh, Correct. Is it? Okay, right. Uh, they, they do have you split up those four specialists among the players. But okay, because really I wondered if those were like player classes or something. It, it's, it, doesn't even, it really doesn't even matter because, you know, as a group, oh, we found a gun. We need to send it to the crime lab and see if there's fingerprints, right? Right. So, uh, and then I have not tried the expansion yet. I'm kind of excited to because as a private investigator, you don't have specialists. It's just, you know, you don't have those four people to ask questions to. You're just doing it on your own. Uh, so I'm kind of curious to see how that changes the gameplay. Is there so, any – once you've – I'm sorry, you go ahead first, Hassan, then I have a question. Oh, well, I, uh, my big question was I think, you know, there's been a, a slight burst of these detective-type mystery-solving games mm-hmm. in the past couple of years. and. Um, it seems like the they're going to live or die based on the quality of the writing and yes. the quality of the the cases themselves, mm-hmm. like whether they're too easy, too hard, and whether the writing's too cheesy or just you know noir enough or whatever. And how mm-hmm. do how do you feel about that? Or even because this this is exactly what I wanted to know too, Hassan. Even uh, like like just too dry, like like Clue. Like is it going to be you know is it in Clue? It's totally random. It's the candlestick. Uh, Colonel Mustard, the library. Like it, you just three components randomly happen to be the solution. You know, when, when I hear you describing this, Mike, uh, I'm kind of thinking, oh, so it's just going to be one of, like, like how, how do these pieces come together to create any sort of narrative or cool sense of, hey, we solved a crime beyond, mm-hmm. oh, I picked the item, the location, and the, the culprit. Mm-hmm. So the the plots and stories and the dialogue are all uh, written. There's none of it's randomly generated. The only thing that's random is what it assigns as far as physical components to represent things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as the thing that you're getting on your phone is is all well crafted. Um, I've been pretty impressed with the writing. Um, 
definitely has a uh, British slant to it, although I think it's created in like Eastern Europe somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I've been I've been happy with all the adventures. Uh, none of them have been easy. Uh, all of them have been I've gotten to an aha moment of oh that's why this happened. And, oh okay, because that uh, that's a crucial component to me of yeah. any like crime mystery is that aha moment. Okay. And the other thing that has happened is I've had uh, people that I'd previously talked to in the game get killed because I was taking too long. Like oh. as, there's hidden time limits of the murderer is going to take this person out if you've gotten to day two, twelve o'clock. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, you know, you'll be like, I was, you, you know, as we're talking as a group and planning what we're going to do, okay, we're going to do this, and we're going to go talk to Bill Smith, and then I get a call from the police station that Bill Smith was just found dead in the park. And you're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? We can't talk to him, and then we have to go look at a new crime scene. So it's it's very cool how that all works. Are there fail states, or you just get to a point where you just have so little information that your score is going to suck? Uh, I have gotten the fake phone calls from the uh the police station saying what's taking so long we already have a suspect <laughs> but i i have not had it say that you know the game's over but you have been called a slacker <laughs> <laughs> and there was one right where they arrested someone that turned out to be the wrong person so yeah. oh that's a fail state or did you come in with the right person i came in with the right right, right answer okay. later so okay yeah so uh, and was... you say with the you you basically got 15 scenarios uh mm -hmm. is there any replayability here uh, I haven't retried a scenario yet, so I'm not sure. Um, I suspect it's it's going to be limited. Um, it's just, just going to plug different values into the same right. Uh, yep, structure. different locations, yeah, right. but the same overall plot of you know who killed who and so on. Right, right. Um, one special mention based on your logistics cut talk you guys had a couple weeks ago is the main uh, box holds all the expansions. It actually has little sections with the icons of the expansions of where everything's going to go. And that makes me really happy. I ultimately like the the cynic in me is like, well, they knew that they were gonna they were leaving stuff out of the box, but ultimately I'm like you, Mike. I'm like super grateful when that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, Chronicles of Crime. Uh, so have, have, have either of you guys played Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective? I mean, Mike, you mentioned that you don't think like a game like this could be done without an app, and someone could argue with you that Sherlock Holmes. Is, is a similar experience without an app. Yeah, and I've looked through that a lot, and I've just never actually sat down with a group to play it. But you're right, you know, and that is gives you the physical components of, you know, newspapers and phone books and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, it's just a little different in that I think the app allows you to have, you know, at one point I think we had 20 different people up on the board in different spots and trying to connect these people and who am I going to ask about what? Because, you know, you can sit there and go through every every single possibility and you're just wasting time on your score. This might be a failure of imagination on my part, Mike, but is there anything the app does that you couldn't do with a big book where you look up a paragraph? Like, look up paragraph 42 and read the text, and then paragraph 42, you pick A, B, or C, and each one sends you to a different page. Like, what... If if you think about it, it's the app is a big, giant cross-reference chart, right, of I'm asking person A about object C and all those different combinations. So I guess you could have a big enough list to do that. <laughs> I'm just, I really want to be sold on this idea of apps. And I, 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 I just am so resistant to letting quasi computer game stuff into my board gaming experiences. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, and especially the, the part where you're looking around a crime scene, you know, you could probably do that with a physical component of here, look at this thing for right, 30 right. seconds and put right. it away. Right. I'm, I mean, I'm similar to you, Tom, in that I, I'm resistant to the idea of letting that seep 
that the digital aspect seep into my board game experience because I'm, that's one reason why I'm playing the board game is to escape it for, for, to a certain extent. But um, I am also on the lookout for new games that are trying to use apps in clever ways. And this one was definitely on my radar as one that seemed to be using an app effectively and creatively and in an interesting way. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, you, you got to give people props for trying trying to explore the design space in this fashion and of course i'm never gonna say hey you should you shouldn't play that game it's stupid to use an app you know like people should play what they're interested in playing yeah. is is mansions of madness currently like the the best case scenario for how an app supports a board game or is it is i actually i don't know because i don't play many of them but is that is that sort of the go-to for hey here's how an app can really enhance an experience I think so because of the the voice acting and music it adds, and then the fact that it kind of acts like a an AI uh, game master for a you know a light role playing right. game. Right. Uh, then the you know the other advantage for both Mansions of Madness and this is they can add more right. content to your game without any new physical components. Right. That's uh, yeah, that would be kind of exciting. Is hey, just an expansion comes out and I don't have to order it; it just shows up. Uh, right. on my app yeah all right i mean mike how do you feel about the the typical arguments that people throw against apps like uh, you know the the infrastructure eventually failing in other words like it will this will this stuff still work in three years or five years um versus a physical board game that theoretically persists for decades right or or how about poor suckers like me that live in such rural areas that my internet sucks ass so bad <laughs> yeah and that uh, I, and, and that this... i probably couldn't qr code this game you know so chronicles of crime at least doesn't need the internet it's all self-contained in the app at least okay so um i'm okay with as long as there's a way to do that indefinitely and doesn't need the internet as a back end um I feel like people that are the app haters are, have some overlap in a Venn diagram to the legacy game haters. Like, I want my game to be pristine right, and playable right. on, a, on a desert island forever. <laughs> right. Well, and also, I don't know if you guys have seen a little movie called uh, 2001 or, uh, <laughs> or, or Terminator, but, uh, you know, we need to be on our guard for that sort of thing. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, all right, Hassan, you've been playing something that I'm wondering. Uh, first of all, is it... it could I, can we ask, like, how is Maniacal coming, or is that something you'd rather not talk about? or Because uh, no, I, I looked at what you were going to talk about this week, and I was like, I bet Hassan was doing research. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, you're absolutely right. Like, when Victorian Masterminds was announced, uh, I can't remember when I first heard about it, but, yeah, it was one of those sinking feelings in my gut you have as a designer when you're like, oh... My game has a similar theme, and who's designing this one? Oh, it's Bowser and Lang. Oh, Jesus Christ! You know. So, um, but no, that uh, Maniacal's actually—it's in a pretty good state right now. It's uh, all the files have been sent to the pl uh, factory in China, and we're kind of waiting for to see some proofs, and then we're going to start printing it um, really, really soon. And um, we're trying to stay on track for delivery by Origins. That's what I'm hoping for. When is Origins? August. Uh, mid mid June, mid June. Oh, oh, even sooner. Oh, wow. Oh, Hassan, that's super soon. Oh, wow. And that might be optimistic because you know once it's printed, it then it literally gets on a stupid boat, and we have yep. to sail the stupid boat across the stupid ocean. But um, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm hopeful. You yeah. know. 
Uh, this yeah. slow boat from China used to be just a, a, a kind of an idiom or a metaphor. Now it's, it's literal, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so okay. So but but I also like I I look at uh, Victorian masterminds and what you're doing, and you know one's a comic book and one is like a Jules Verne inspired thing. Like I, you know, you're both the villain, but I didn't. I can't imagine there's much overlap. So actually, tell us. Right. Yeah. What's uh, what's Victorian masterminds, and is there any overlap with maniacal? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to report that there isn't a ton of overlap and that you could happily own both of these games. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, no, Victorian Masterminds is, is a pretty new release from CMON. It just came out, I think, a month or two ago. It hasn't been getting a lot of buzz, and I'm going to comment on that. I, th I think I maybe know why. But the designers are two heavy hitters. It's Bowser, you know, who's done Seven Wonders and Ghost Stories and a bunch of t other stuff, and Eric Lang, um, who we've oh. talked about previously. So you, you you kind of imagine these two guys getting together on a design. It's going to be epic. Um, but it, it's it's quite possible that one of the reasons why it, it has been getting somewhat mediocre reviews is that maybe the two of them collaborating on this, they had to maybe make some compromises with each other and the final product, I don't know, didn't achieve the some sort of fulfilled brilliance that it would have if it had been in just one of their hands. Right, but, right. Uh, but the the quick summary of it is that it's it's got this cool Victorian theme to it. Um, Sherlock Holmes is missing or dead, and so the evil masterminds around the world decide to take advantage of this and partake in various nefarious tasks. Um, mechanically, it's a it's a, a pretty light worker placement game that has some clever twists to it. Um, ultimately, you're trying to earn victory points by doing typically nefarious things like capturing buildings um i'll say that the, the game calls it capturing buildings we called it destroying buildings and i don't know why you wouldn't call it destroying buildings it's just you're you're like you're knocking down like the white house and stuff like that um, right because they're like landmarks they're things that a villain yeah. would destroy rather than yeah, occupy I, yeah yeah i don't yeah. want to i don't want to capture the eiffel tower i want to <laughs> blow it up i mean not really let me make that clear not really <laughs> <laughs> but, Interpol um, now has issued a warrant for your arrest. <laughs> um, but you're also each each player who's playing one of these masterminds is building a giant evil machine, like a machine of doom. That's you know like a cool submarine with lasers on it, or a giant drill, or something like that. And by building your machine, you can earn points. You can also gain points in more boring ways, like collecting these what are called Da Vinci codices and adding them to your library. It's just a very generic way of just earning points in the game. Um, it's a it's a game with great table presence. It has lots of superfluous miniatures. Like they really are absolutely unnecessary, and yet I still love them. I don't care. And maybe one of the best features of the game, which is something I'm gonna I want to chat with you guys about, is that um well kinda like Riz Arcana, what you were talking about, Tom, is that it's very quick to explain and it plays very quickly. The sixty minutes on the box is actually accurate. It can be done in under sixty minutes. And I think it fits in this really sweet category of uh, slightly heavier than gateway, like slightly heavier than a pure lightweight game. So something that you could start your game evening with and then move on to something bigger, or you could just play this several times in a row, which is what we did and be really excited by it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm, 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 I'm deviating from what I think is the kind of um, norm response to the game right now, which is meh. I actually quite like it and I'm definitely going to keep it in my collection. 
So, uh-huh. so you mentioned you had an idea for why you think that meh is the response and there's not a lot of buzz. Well, why yeah. do you think that is? I, I think I think that the cynic will look at it and be like, oh, this is just standard, unexciting worker placement. There are other games that do worker placement in much more interesting ways. Um, and ultimately, the worker placement just leads to accumulation of VP, and then you add up your VP at the end, and that's that, right? There, there, there are literally hundreds of games that fall into that category and if you already have two or three of these in your collection then i could totally understand why you would pass this over and, and um, also uh, hassan because that was exactly when when i heard about this i was like yeah i definitely want that um and even looking at the components you know i'm building a giant underground drill to destroy the eiffel tower yes i want to do that so i looked up the rules and read over them and kind of had that reaction like oh it's just worker placement to get points um, that's right that's right. Which is unfair, considering I didn't have the game, and it, like a, a lot of times I'll do that is just scan the rules and then pass a snap judgment. That's hardly fair, uh, right. but that was my takeaway after very quickly looking at Victorian Masterminds. Yeah, it's it's interesting because people often have a, a critique of of bureau games by saying, not only are the mechanics a bit dry, but why did they pick this fucking boring theme like trading goods <laughs> in the Mediterranean? Well, why don't they pick something more interesting? Right? Ancient Rome. Come on. Right. <laughs> and so these guys, they pick a cool theme, right? They pick right. a cool theme, but they're like, but we want to make a Euro game, basically. Mm-hmm. And and then people's response to that is, oh, but I wanted to really blow up the Eiffel Tower. It's like, <laughs> right. it's like well, get over expect- it. People expect yeah. uh, a Meritrash and good theme, not Euro and good theme. Correct, correct. Right, I think right. that's where it's coming from. It's it's people's disappointment. They look at it, they see Eric Lang's name on it. They're like, oh, this is going to be super awesome. There's going to be area control. Right, and right. Fighting each other with henchmen. And it's not that at all. It's really a, a, a pretty light engine building worker placement game that has, I think, fits a really nice um, spot in your collection. But um, I'll tell you the, the couple bits about it that I, uh, that I do want to sell to you guys um, is that the it has, there are other worker placements that do this where your workers are not all the same. There are unique workers. Mm-hmm. You have a set of five workers in the game, and each one of them does something slightly different. Um, you will be assigning them to these various cities in the world, like Moscow or Washington, D.C. or London, and each of those cities is associated with a particular resource that you're trying to gather, and then you're going to transform those resources into points or building parts for your giant evil machine, um, which is going to build your engine a little bit better. But I do like how each of the workers is slightly different. Um, One of them gives you double the resources, another one lets you capture a building, the henchman lets you fulfill a mission, and so on. One of the more interesting workers is called the saboteur, and he's able to cancel the ability of another player's agent. Ooh, Um, I like that. that. Yeah, that only makes sense if you understand how the the resolution works. So in in a typical worker placement, right, you you place your worker on a spot and you immediately get the benefit from that spot. And Mm -hmm. the the player interaction is is mediated by the fact that you've now blocked that spot, right? So somebody Mm -hmm. else now can't go there for a certain amount of time. Um, It doesn't work like that in Victorian masterminds. Instead, you... You place your agent face down on a city spot so people don't know which specific agent you've put there. Then somebody else maybe wants to go to that same city, 
And so they'll place their agent face down on top of yours. And then another player maybe puts theirs face down on top. And as soon as a stack reaches three, you immediately resolve the stack. You flip the stack over and you resolve it such that the 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 player who's first the, the who first put their agent there that one's going to be resolved first right, right you can right. flip the stack over and you go in order um, that's where the saboteur can kick in because if I went to a location first and put my saboteur there if Mike you were um, foolish enough to place your agent on top of my saboteur I would negate your your agent's ability uh, okay so well, that especially with this idea that each city or each space does something different or distinct or unique or gives you a specific resource. Uh, right. Like that seems there'd be a lot of cat and mouse in terms of, oh, I, I know that Mike needs whatever Moscow offers for his submarine. Uh, That's right. So I, I'm not going to put my saboteur there, but he thinks that I would put my saboteur there because he knows <laughs> that I know that he wants. <laughs> right. There is a little bit of that second guessing, and the game's not so complicated that to make that impossible, to be right. honest with you. Um, and the, the other piece of information you can have is once you once your workers have been resolved they sit actually in a face-up discard pile that's in front of each player so i can actually hmm. look in front of you tom and see that oh your saboteur has already been used right? right so i know that one of your face down tokens on the map is not a saboteur so i could safely put my token on top of yours right? is that the only interaction when there are multiple uh agents flipped up is it just is there a saboteur canceling someone else's agent um that is it that there okay. that is that is the limited interaction in this game um it's it's really a game about using your workers most efficiently and that not just your saboteur but your other specialized workers trying to get resources not get blocked from those resources um there is a there is a sort of a, a clever race sometimes to these various mission cards. Each city has a mission in front of it that is very much a, a simple satisfy this and you get a certain number of points. Like, have you destroyed at least three buildings? Okay, if you come here with your henchmen, then you can take that mission. But sometimes there's a race to those and we might both be gunning for that same mission, which means that if I get there first, it's better for me. Um, or I might be able to saboteur your henchmen, cancel their ability to complete that mission, right? Um, so all of this is to say that I think I think it's got enough little clever hooks to make it more interesting and, and different enough than than the average worker placement game. Is there any asymmetry? Among, so these different machines that players are building, are they just victory point boards, or are there, do they do any different gameplay things, or is there any asymmetry from game to game based on what I'm trying to build? Yeah, there definitely is. There's, uh, there's, they, they're not just victory points. There's also elements of engine building in there. So as you build up your machine, for example one of your workers, the, the so-called engineer, will get more and more powerful. And the engineer is the one worker that that is unique for each player. So there's asymmetry in the engineer's ability, and that asymmetry gets increased as the game goes on. Wait, as what do you mean unique for each player? Like, from the like, from the very first turn, my engineer doesn't do what your or Mike engineer correct. does? Oh, correct. Yeah. wow. And that, the engineer's ability is linked to your machine, your specific machine. Oh, and, oh, and then, you okay. can, then you can buff your engineer by building up those specific components on your machine. Um, 
I should say that the the machine building is 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 fun. Um, it's each machine is composed of eight or so I think different parts, and you might complete your machine in a game, but you might not. I think in our games that we played, the winner, you know, maybe one out of the three times we played, maybe twice, um, completed his machine. But you don't have to to win the game. And it's still and, doing something for you as you're ramping it up. It's still empowering absolutely. up your engineer. Absolutely. And and the order in which you complete the pieces feeds into your strategy. So I might, oh. for example, focus on my weapons on my machine so that I can increase my firepower stat. And that lets me take down buildings easier. And so I'm just focusing on a building destruction strategy, which I'll be honest with you, is by far the most satisfying strategy. <laughs> um, but or you might be really focusing on your engineer and making them as awesome as possible so that every time you activate your engineer, you're really just cranking through resources. Um, and what sort of player counts? Is this another is this a two to four player only thing? It is two to four, but uh, I wouldn't play it with two. I, I, I really, right. I think, I think it's a three or four player game, definitely. Um, but under, but an hour long. I mean, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I really liked it. You know, I, I, I don't want to like oversell it. This isn't a game that's going to win any awards, but it is. It, 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 it's like I was, you know, alluding to earlier. It. Over the past few years, I've become increasingly uh, fond of what I would call gateway plus games, like light, medium mm. weight games, yes. both in terms of play, but also design. Like, I think it's actually harder to design lightweight games and light, medium weight games than it is to design these enormous, massive monstrosities that are pumped out by Kickstarter daily that yep. have 50 page rule books. That's yep. easy compared yep. to you know, a trim, you know, four page manual, like something that Concordia has and yet is incredibly deep and interesting. Right. right. Um, yeah. And I, I, I like these games now and I like something like modern art. I just I just love that game. And I would call that kind of like a gateway plus. And I I really like Chinatown and I really like Clank, actually, as a as a as a recent example of a of a gateway plus, you know, mm -hmm. games that I can pull out to really a new player Maybe, you know, people always describe Gateway Pluses as, oh, they've played Settlers of Catan and now they're looking for something better. <laughs> it's like, let's just skip over Settlers and, you yeah. know, like, like maybe you've played, I don't know, Parcheesi. What am I going to show you next? <laughs> you know, um, I would potentially pull this one out. Um, so I is Gateway Plus an actual term or is that something you came I mean, is that is that something you came up with or is that something no. that's in use? No, that's something in use, and yeah, it's, okay. it's kind of designed to refer to like, oh, you, you've got some, you've got, you invited a couple over to to play a game at your house. They want to know what this whole board game thing is right. all about, and maybe they've played Carcassonne, right? And that's that's all they've played. So what's the what's maybe the next step? Right, right, right. Like, and, and you can just leapfrog yeah. over Ticket to Ride to a gate plate, Gateway Plus game. Correct. <laughs> right. Correct. Yep. Exactly. I like that. Exactly. I like that a lot. So yeah. Hassan, are you are you a fan of uh, worker placement games in general? Well, you know, it, it, it. I think they have to do something interesting. So, like, just as an example, like for, for a little while there, I had a fondness for Lords of Waterdeep as a as a kind of a gateway plus worker placement game, and mm -hmm. it, it has fallen off of my playlist lately because I just find it too too boring and and uninteresting and kind of random at this point. Um, mm -hmm. But there there are other worker placements that I like, but they always have to, I think, have some additional thing that they're doing besides just yeah. collecting resources to get victory points, right? Yeah. I'm not, I'm certainly not fond of felt like 
uh, point salads or even really complex um, worker placements like Feast of Odin and stuff like that. I look at those games and I'm I'm not interested in playing them typically. Mike, why do you ask? Mid- oh. Well, my wife is a big worker placement fan, so I was always am looking out for for more of them. And the one you and, just mentioned, I want to go ahead and finish Ch- that. Champion, yep. Champion of the Midgard is is my always my go to for worker placement because it has the, you know, your workers are dice or you have dice, excuse me, that you get as part of the game and then you get to have battles and stuff too in addition to the just the worker placement stuff yeah and sending off the you know sending off the expeditions and i, I really like I'm, I'm super down on worker placement but i really like champions of midgard that's super, yeah, i agree yeah. i agree i think i think people if they're looking for example at lords of Waterdeep versus champions you should pick up champions yeah, right yeah. i mean it's yep. just a it's a more interesting game with actually not that much more rules overhead so. Yeah, definitely. So uh, before we go, there's a couple things that you guys mentioned that I, I want to ask about for purely selfish reasons. Um, Hassan, what is hate? Capital H, <laughs> capital A, capital T, capital E. Oh, oh my God. I don't even know if I want to <laughs> talk about this. Uh, hate is, you know, I was just referring to Kickstarter monstrosities. Well, that that's what hate is. So hate, hate has a funny story in my game group. So this was a this is a Simon game, and if you guys look up you know images of it, you'll see just how kind of absurd it is. It's a <laughs> miniature heavy one v one tactical combat game set in this sort of cannibalistic, absolutely not safe for children future <laughs> world, right? And so far, you're selling me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so uh, when the Kickstarter campaign was launched well over a year ago, the the video that Simon put out for it was notorious for being kind of offensive. And so I watched it and I just thought it was hilarious. It was just one of those things that I watched and I was like, I immediately shared with my game group. It's like, you guys have to watch. This is fucking crazy. Uh, and we, we like for days, we were just like joking about it and quoting from it and just yucking it up. And then it turns out two of the guys in my group decided to kickstart it like and support like go full hog into yep. it kind of, yep. kind of as a joke. Yep. And so now we have two, like full-blown copies of this giant stupid game that were Hassan. Kind of, that's that's like, called ironically supporting a Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's and, what, and what's sad fair, is a okay. Go ahead, Mike. Go where you're gonna. I was say? gonna say is that Simon Kickstarters are gonna be no more. So enjoy it while you can. Oh, and, why have they announced? Hey, we're done with oh, this nonsense. Or no, Asmodee bought them. So oh, oh, well, there you go. Okay, right, right. <laughs> I should be surprised they weren't part of Asmodee already. Okay. Yeah. Well, to to be fair to hate, I may I may end up talking about it again later because we're we're working our way through the game. I've only played it once at this point, um, and and I, I need to play it more before I can give it any kind of fair judgment. Okay. Uh, and then the one that uh, I want to hear about that you mentioned, Mike. I don't I don't know if you played it or if you're going to play it. Uh, you mentioned this, and I was like, what is that? And I looked it up, and I was like, uh, okay, that looks kind of silly. But then I saw, oh, wait a minute, maybe I want this. But then I read the rules and thought, uh, what? So what's the deal with Reckoners? Oh, so, well, first of all, are you familiar with the Reckoners, uh, the books? Have you read those? Uh, I am not, and I am assuming, after having read the rules, that it's some, like, young adult fiction. No, it's it's some Brandon Sanderson. Oh. So he's uh, he writes Oh, oh, good lie. Yeah, stuff. I know who that is. Okay, right. Yeah. So the the premise of this book series, which has been out a few years, is that uh, at some point superheroes start showing up in the world, except every single one of them is evil and want is 
just causing a wreck. So something about getting superpowers makes people corrupt. So they've taken over the country, their cities in ruins, and the government just lets them do whatever they do, when they, whatever they want, because they can't stop them. So the Reckoners are these group of humans trying to stop these supervillains uh, from causing uh, havoc in the world. And um, Real quick, is really, the tone of the – is this a novel or a graphic novel? It's a novel, uh, right? uh, Three novels. It's a uh, is, is the tone dark? Yes. Okay. Okay. And it's, it's really well done. Um, when I first heard about the premise, I was like, eh, but I ended up really liking the book series. Okay. Um, so you play, it's, it has all these really cool components. And for a Kickstarter, I'm amazed they did this. They got that game trays company to do all these, you know, vacuum formed uh, location things. Why, why are have... you amazed? Is it, is game trays like hard to get? No, to I'm just, for? I'm surprised that a Kickstarter spent that much on it. Oh, I see. Right. <laughs> From right. a, for, you know, it's just a couple guys who had this idea for the game and went up to Brandon Sanderson and he said, okay, sure. And they successfully made a game. Uh Um, But it's, I actually really like it. It uses all these custom dice uh, based on which character from the book you play. You know, the different abilities. You know, there's a sniper and there's a operations kind of person. Mm -hmm. um, So then each game you're, or each turn you roll dice, uh, set some aside, re-roll, set some aside. And then that determines what your actions are for the turn. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to... I don't want to say whack-a-mole, but these different supervillains show up and are causing havoc, and you're trying to defeat them. Uh, you have to research them to figure out what their weaknesses are, and then that like, makes them easier to kill. And then there's kind of this arch-villain overall uh, uh, named Steelheart, which is instantly the name of the first novel uh, that you're ultimately trying to stop. So, so one of the one of my reservations after reading the rules was it didn't seem like there were that many icons on the dice it didn't seem like there were enough icons that the various dice would give you to make the characters that you're playing, uh, or even the villains for that matter, feel distinct or, or unique. Is that is that the case? As far as, as far as the villains, they're very much, you know, in the fiction, right? They all have cool powers and stuff. Right. And and that seems game... to me like that would be a cool uh, core concept of this game was the the distinction amongst different crazy superheroes that do horrible things and how each of their powers would make them feel different or unique. I think of like the gods in spirit Island or something. Yep. Um, yeah. And that's, and for the villain side of things, that's definitely missing. Uh, it's just okay. kind of different stats on how hard they are to kill or right. whether or not they create more police around or whatever they do. Um, for the actual uh, characters that you play, they all feel pretty because the different, because they have different dice depending on which character they are. Like the more combat-y ones will have more results that get hits, and you know there's kind of that change. So it feels like I'm playing a, a you know, a sneaky person or a person who's strategizing versus kind of an all-out combat guy. Right, right. And, and then there's a there's gear you get to to upgrade your abilities and give you you know rerolls and so on. Because that too is where it seemed like yeah the gear would have a in a way like does the gear have more personality than the, than the characters i again i didn't have the components i couldn't quite tell but uh, mm-hmm. reading over it it looked like uh, the gear is what would let you maybe do the more cool stuff than the but i guess if you're human that's kind of how it works right, right. <laughs> yeah yeah okay and you know you have you know like the sniper has the ability to attack someone not on his space right so it's little things like that because i'm a sniper i can do this one extra thing right 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 uh, that uh, game actually is not out for retail yet. I got a, I ordered it. I missed the Kickstarter, played it at Gen Con, and then ordered it directly from them. So, 
Is it going to have a retail presence? Do you know? It will. It's. Uh, I don't know the date without looking it up, but okay. All right. sometime in the next month or two, I believe. Yeah, because I, I looked it up and was like, oh, I could play that solitaire. Because, you know, it's, it's a co-op game. Yeah. Yep. So. And it's and the uh, number of locations you put out is based on the number of players, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool, too. The locations don't have any – there's no di- difference between locations, right? Uh, like, no, it's, it's just how many you have to worry about at once. Okay. And then which villain is squatting on which location. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yep. All right. All right, so uh, there we have uh, Race Arcana, Chronicles of Crime, Victorian Masterminds. Uh, let me once again just make this little noise. There's my copy <laughs> of uh, Call to Adventure. I'm going to go unshrink wrap that. Uh, are you guys like me, by the way, in that when a new game arrives, you are an absolute fiend about opening it up and punching the boards and sorting everything? Like, you cannot rest until... It has been broken down into its components, and you've touched every single thing and organized it. Are you guys like that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I hope you like, know that the, the uh, discipline it's taken me to not tear into this call to adventure box while I'm talking to you guys. So I have some is, friends. I have friends who have you know board games that are still in the shrink wrap. I'm like, I know what? that what? is insane to me. How do you own something and not tear the shrink wrap off of it as soon as conceivably possible? Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, everyone, thank you so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks, let you know what we are playing then. I am Tom Chick. I have been here with Mike Pullman. You guys check out Gaming Goat in Littleton, Colorado, and also Hassan Lopez. Uh, Check out the Maniacal campaign. We'll talk to you guys in two weeks. Cheers.